Hey, Vulture TV podcast listeners. We'd like to tell you about another Vulture show we think you'd really like. It's called The Award Show Show, and it's co-hosted by Vulture's Kyle Buchanan and by John Horn, host of the podcast The Frame. This week on The Award Show Show, they'll take a deep dive into this year's best screenplay race with special guest Franklin Leonard. He's the founder of The Blacklist, the annual list of the best unproduced screenplays in Hollywood. Hello and welcome to the Vulture TV Podcast. I'm your host, Gazelle Amami. On this week's show, we're looking at how love triangles and romance on TV has evolved. Plus, we're joined by crazy ex-girlfriend creator Rachel Bloom. I'm here with New York Magazine TV critic Matt Zoller-Seitz. Hi, Gazelle. Hi, Matt. And Vulture TV columnist Jen Cheney. Hi, guys. Hey, Hey, Jen. Jen. So we're going to get into TV romances in just a minute. But first, we have this week's prompt to answer. And this week, our producers asked us, what TV pair would you have liked to see get together but never did? Hmm. Uh, my pick would be uh, CJ and Toby on the West Wing. Hmm. Not that there were ever any indications that that could, it was something that could happen, but I always felt like they had uh, a spark. Yeah, they had a spark like there was a, like they were intellectual combatants, and I just thought like why did wh- how come that never occurred to them to go there? You know, not that every show needs a workplace romance like that, but no, that's a good one though. How about you, Jen? So I have two answers because I interpreted the question in two potentially different ways, mm-hmm. which is also called cheating. Uh, so <laughs> one way was just who should have gotten together and never did, or who would have been interesting. And for some reason, my mind immediately goes to like high school shows mm-hmm. or junior high school shows. So I thought immediately for some reason of Paul Pfeiffer and Winnie Cooper on The Wonder Years, because if you remember, there was a brief period before she finally gets together with Kevin when Paul kind of has a crush on her and it's a problem. And I think it would have been interesting to see that kind of play out a little bit, make Kevin uncomfortable. I feel like Paul and Winnie could have been potentially compatible. Uh, I think you're right. And, and then I'm thinking... Um, people who did get together but it didn't work out that I wish the relationship had actually played out for a longer period of time on the show uh, and for that one I thought of um, Lindsay and Nick from Freaks and Geeks because I just loved that relationship yeah. and uh, and especially because they were actually an item in real life um, I wish they had I wish oh, that I whole show that. had played out longer but um, <laughs> I right. wish they maybe it would have happened too. if it had Lady yeah, maybe. L Lady Lady L <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> That's great. Um, so for me, you know, it's it's a slightly tongue-in-cheek one, but I would have to say Will Graham and Hannibal Lecter. <laughs> oh, that's the best. It's, that's the best. I, I mean, should have said that. I should have said that. <laughs> you can still you can still say it. We can both have. I'm Will changing my vote. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, the show really dangles that in front of us a lot. I really just wish, you know, we, we see them fall off a cliff together in the finale, in each other's arms. A kiss <laughs> a kiss would have been nice. Would it have killed him? Would it have killed him? No, It would have felt not. right, I clearly think. Clearly not. I think. There's such a deep connection there, and that's what's such a compelling part of the show. Well, they, I got to say, that relationship inspired some of the greatest slash fiction and <laughs> art ever, ever. Unbelievable. It's pretty hot. Unbelievable. Well, and I think it's because it's just such an art history conscious show. But there's like, you know, you can find that you can find their, you know, their, their, them in the configuration of like characters from like a Michelangelo painting or one of the <laughs> Dutch masters or, you know, I yeah. mean, there's like no end to it. It's like, well, there, ooh, somebody painted an, it's impressionist. Look, they're by a lake. <laughs> <laughs> it's beautiful. So that's this week's prompt. Listeners, if you would like to weigh in on this week's prompt, or if you'd like to suggest a prompt for the future, please email us at tvquestions@vulture.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673. The Vulture TV podcast will be back in a moment with Catherine Van Arendonk to talk about TV romance. We're very happy to have Vulture contributor Catherine Van Arendonk with us here today. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us. I'm so happy to be here. Uh, Catherine also co-hosts her own TV podcast. Yes, I, ha- I it's called Appointment Television. Um, it's with two really good friends of mine, um, and we have a TV book club. So we watch uh, 
old shows, usually, um, a couple of weeks at a time. Right now, we're watching the BBC Cranford, which is deeply satisfying in these troubling <laughs> times. So <laughs> Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a great show. So you guys should check that one out as well. And, you know, today we're going to focus specifically on romantic relationships on television, which is something Catherine has written for us a little bit on Vulture. So basically, in order for a TV show to keep us interested in a romantic couple, a lot of it is about kind of using these well-trodden tropes that we see happen again and again. And Catherine, I was wondering if you could start us off by kind of taking us through some of these stages that a TV couple, that we might recognize a TV couple having gone through. Sure. So often we begin a TV couple with the will they, won't they? I think uh, that is kind of our most familiar starting point of um, particularly in a in a soapy kind of genre where you have these two characters and they're moving toward each other. And so, and it, it's a, we start there because it's this great engine for getting viewers invested and for um, pulling together maybe if you're a procedural but you then have two leads, it, it draws people back uh, from episode to episode that, that like, when will Booth and Brennan finally, you know, get, get, make it happen? <laughs> and then after the will they, won't they ends, you enter this kind of cyclical problem where that tension is gone, and so you have to replace it with other kinds of things. So you can you can uh, you have this brief giddy stage where they like they did get together, and then that can't last very long because that's generally pretty annoying to watch from the outside. Um, and so then they have to either find other stories for those couples to be involved with, or they have to um, then immediately make them unhappy with each other or break them up with each other and then start the whole will they, won't they cycle again with somebody else. So that's generally also when a love triangle enters, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Because you want to recreate that tension that you had in the beginning where it's like, well, now they're together and it's happy. And all of a sudden I can see all of the flaws that I was never given any narrative access to in the past. So that's like, say, on Gilmore Girls, if you have Dean in the beginning as a will they, won't they, and then they get together and then along comes Jess and ruins everything for 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 old Dean. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, although... Or some people would say makes it all better. Yeah, it's, it's a great point. I would point. agree. I would agree. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a case where it's not like we ever thought that Rory and Dean weren't going to get together. That was kind right. of predetermined when his him and his haircut showed up. At <laughs> um. Yeah. Well, that's a great movie. You got good taste. Are you moving? No, just my books are. My family just moved here from Chicago. Chicago? Windy. Oprah. Yeah, yeah, that's the place. I'm Dean. Hi. Oh, Rory. But, uh, but yeah, that once they're together, there is this, particularly for, I have to say, particularly for young female characters, this because that is such an engine of how we tell stories about women who their romantic partner is once they're with someone you can sense a lot of shows saying like i don't i don't have any story anymore because she's a young woman and so like the only way mm. particularly for rory i have to say like the only way that you then create character development for rory is to push her up against a different guy right that can be a kind of different foil for her. So, oh, like now she's going to do a little tiny bit of a rebellion. But like Dean is the least rebellious person of all time. So you have to create a Jess person right. to come in and, and create that tension for her. So are these open? Oh, yeah. You just have to unlatch them and then push. Great. Shall we? Shall we what? Bail. No. Why? Because it's Tuesday night in Stars Hollow. There's nowhere to bail to. The 24-hour mini mart just closed 20 minutes ago. So we'll walk around or sit on a bench and stare at our shoes. Look, Suki just made a ton of really great food and I'm starving and though it may not seem like it right at this moment, it's going to be fun. Trust me. I don't even know you. Well, don't I look trustworthy? Maybe. Okay, good. Let's eat. Yeah. So so where were we? We were at the adding adding in a third, a yeah. third party. Yes. And then the triangle. Does, where do we go from there? Does it... Well, cycle back through. <laughs> <laughs> it can, right? Um, I think 
it really depends what kind of what kind of show you're watching and right. sort of what the what the role romance is gonna what role romance is gonna play for those characters. So if you're watching a show like Gilmore Girls, um, or actually a show that's that's sort of like say Vampire Diaries or um, or even Scandal, where a lot of the plotting that happens in the personal lives of these characters is based on who they're with, that almost always needs to be a question, an unanswered mm-hmm. question in some way. Right. Um, it, it's almost like a mystery plot where you have this uh, this forward propulsive thing that you need to create to, to move your character from one episode to the next one. So you say, like, they're going to get together with some new person now. Um, except then, once again, you enter that new stage of now they're together and what do you do? So... It then either cycles back and they are unhappy and they break up and they go back to the original person or they get married. And then that finally creates a like, oh, shoot, they're married. Like now I have to do something else. Right. And then they then a lot of times they'll give them a baby, which completely destroys any interest that anyone has in watching the show. <laughs> that's like the opposite of drama is to give characters on a sitcom or a, or a I, drama a baby. I would maintain that's because TV has been historically terrible at telling stories about babies. But and, yeah. and it's yeah. used as a device, maybe <clears throat> as opposed to actually thinking about what that will mean for right. the show. Exactly. Right. So, that, yeah. so Jane the Virgin is a great example of a better way to do that story. Right. Mm-hmm. Where you had this love triangle in the first season between Jane and Michael or Jane and Raphael. Then she has this baby and is actually her life is impacted by by that baby. And so all of the story actually in the past seasons have been well, she's in love with and then eventually marries Michael. Jane. Michael, hi. You knew. I can't believe you knew. What? About Andy. When I told you about her the other day, you stood there acting like you had no idea who she was. I just... I didn't know what to say. Well, how about Michael? She's in my writer's group. I couldn't. Why? Because you seemed happy. And I didn't want to ruin that. I should have. I'm sorry, okay? Jane, what's wrong? Raphael and I broke up. Are you okay? But she's stuck with Raphael because he literally is the father of this child, which right. is at least more thoughtful way to keep these this tension around mm-hmm. than um, a lot of love triangle situations are. Right. Like on the Mindy Project, mm. didn't go quite so well uh, because not only, you know, does she have a baby, but the father of her baby, Danny Castellano, played by Chris Messina. Chris Messina left the show. Right. And, you know, I'm not sure what went on there, but I think that show had become so focused on their relationship. Mm. And it was kind of, that's what kind of turned the show along. And without that, it kind of, I don't know. I think I think it can <laughs> be an issue where, where the romantic, if the romantic relationship is too much a part of what makes the show good, mm, then yeah. you're, it's kind of a risky game to be playing. It is, if yeah. you end up you, casting things change all the time, you can't always depend on that to keep your show moving forward. Yeah. Um, also, it can just get really tired, right? Right. Then that's that's also true. There's that classic yeah. pattern of uh, once, you know, will they, won't they, and then they, uh, then they do. Yeah. And then it's like Robert Redford at the end of The Candidate. Like, now now what do I do? Mm-hmm. You know, where do we go from here? And a lot of times it seems like TV shows don't know the answer to that. Yeah, I would maintain, actually, well, I think it's gotten, I think it's gotten better than it used mm-hmm. to be. Um, I think, I, I don't have a fully formed thesis for this, but it does feel like short season shows and mm-hmm. shows that are not operating on a giant network scale, the kind of Booth Brennan bones problem where like we have to do this cyclical oh shoot it's the nielsen it's nielsen sweeps again like they've got to kiss and then break Mm -hmm. up and then kiss and then break up um don't have that quite that same pressure have um a different uh canvas of space to work in so that it doesn't feel quite so much like that will they won't they has to take up so much energy from the show right Mm -hmm. like we're talking to rachel bloom later on the show and you know, I think that show is a perfect example. Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Mm. You had one member of the love triangle, Greg, leave the show, but it still works perfectly well without him. Right. Because it's a show really about 
her. Right, right, right. Yeah. So I think, yeah, so absolutely. It's it's um, also just making shows that have particularly when it's, again, a female center of the love triangle shows that have female characters who have other things going on in their lives than whatever romantic partner they're currently with. Um, right. Which is so funny that that would be the show that would be so good it at is. it because it's, right. it's built on her yeah. being obsessed with these of guys. Course, yeah. Right. Yeah. But but I think the alternative is is something that looks more like a like a Grey's Anatomy thing where it's like, is she going to be with Derek or not? And then she is for years. And then he, like they they have been good again recently, but it's because they they killed him. And so now <laughs> they were like forced to find other things to do with a lot of those characters. Yeah, there were there going back through television history. There have been many, many examples, particularly on sitcoms of situations where there's a couple mm-hmm. And there's, you know, one of them suspects the other that the other is cheating, but then the concerns always turn out to be uh, ill-founded. Like mm. they miss, they heard something wrong, or they got a piece of information wrong, and they it was all in their minds. But it seems like it's only uh, maybe in our lifetimes that we've started to see. St- stories where it's an actual triangle Mm. like there's actually like you know one person is torn between two people Hmm. or there's some kind of like there's there's sex involved there's a dynamic like it's not just a means to um get the characters into a little bit of comic misunderstanding and then get them out of it at the end yeah i mean i i would have to think i think part of what also you're describing is this sense that a lot of the love triangles, particularly older love triangles that we think of as being super intense, are more in the minds of the audience than they are actually written on on the screen. Like what? Well, I'm thinking even of something like Buffy and Angel and Spike. There was never really much time where it was the three of them right up against each other. She had broken up with one and then like was not was with like what was his name Riley and nobody really liked Riley and then she was with, it's not actually a triangle written into the show because there's something you know scary and sexual about that that um particularly a teen focused show like that uh isn't super comfortable with doing um and so or sex in the city is the same it's not so much that she, that like she was picking mm-hmm. between big and and Aiden or seeing both of them at the same time or seeing time. both of them at the same time which because again for a female character that's um, a complexity we're not particularly great with women having um, mm-hmm. two sexual partners at the same time. Couldn't it be like the wood? And that's my flaw. And 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 you're the other wood, and that it makes us stronger. It's not that simple, Gary. I just wish I didn't know about this. I just wanted to be honest with you. And so instead, it becomes an audience thing. It becomes these two characters are alive in our heads simultaneously, even huh. though on screen they don't actually happen. That's interesting because, like, it's, like I hadn't thought of it that way, but, like, what we often think of as a love triangle on a TV show is, in fact, it's a couple whose happiness is complicated by the presence of somebody who one of those partners was once with. Or might have feelings for the one person thinks the other person might have feelings for this person, but the third person is really on the outside. Yeah, absolutely. it's not really a triangle. Yeah, absolutely. Huh? Yeah. Um, or I mean, sometimes, and this gets back to what you were saying before about sort of the soap opera element of this. I'm thinking about the original 90210, the Brenda Dillon Kelly yeah. triangle, which was a major motivator for why I was watching it for a while, aside from just making fun of it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that I felt like a lot of what the the draw of that was for the viewers was just watching um, Kelly and Brenda just get catty with each other, mm. you know? Uh, and so you're putting the two female characters at odds kind of fighting over or Dylan and everybody had their opinion about who should be with him or not. But that's sort of an element at play. And in, in I think the less sophisticated ways of, of doing this mm. where you pit the women against each other hmm. over the same guy. Mm. Yeah. Uh, one of my colleagues, Jackson McHenry also he wrote this piece I liked about Felicity and how it's a great mm-hmm. love triangle, but there's no great couples. And I had never thought about it that way. But Felicity and Ben and Felicity and Noel, they don't there's not that much excitement there. They're kind of boring as couples. But and that's why it kind of is kind of an amazing love triangle, because 
in the end, she also gets to pick both. She literally travels back in time and yeah. chooses differently. Yeah. And it kind of gets at the ridiculousness of the love triangle just as like just a form where, you know, she's an indecisive person and this isn't necessarily either choice could be really great. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, it also just is testament to how much more juice television knows how to get out of the triangle, even the imagined triangle mm-hmm. than it than an actual sort of settled couple. Um, does a, does right? a, a TV relationship where it's usually the guy is uh, uh, cheating he has another partner on the side. That doesn't count as a triangle, right? That's just a, mm. that's just one character. Well, it cheating. depends on the show. Yeah. Well, like on Insecure, you have Issa cheating, mm. and it is it is in a sense, you know, you can be on Team Lawrence or Team Daniel. Mm-hmm. You know, is it a triangle? If it's the, not a triangle, uh, but it's if if I, I feel like in order for it to tr- it's like we're we're you know devising the according to Hoyle rules here but <laughs> but I feel like for me just for me it doesn't really count as a triangle unless all three people are aware of the of mm. the others huh mm-hmm. interesting you know? yeah I do I think that's fair you know yeah like I think Jane the Virgin is a true love triangle absolutely you have, yeah classic there's tension between the two men mm-hmm. and she literally leaves one for the other and then leaves the other to go back. To go to back. Yeah. Bruce Willis, Sybil Shepard, and Mark Harmon on Moonlighting was truly a triangle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, a show that I think is doing something really interesting, and we could debate whether it's triangles or not, I think you, I think it kind of is, is The Affair, where, mm-hmm. you know, in that first season, it's really, you know, Noah, Allison, and Helen are the focus, and that's a triangle. And then, and then also Noah, Allison, and Cole, because you have two people who are already married committing adultery. Mm. Um but what's interesting to me about that show is that now that it's in its third season and it's looking now, it started out as being what takes somebody away from their marriage. And now it's like what keeps somebody connected to somebody that they, they were once married to. And, and often it's the children. And I think what's going on on that show now is, is representative of that. But now you have different triangles. You have um, still in a way Noah, Allison and Cole and Noah, Allison and Helen, but you also have Allison, Cole and Louisa. So it's like they keep expanding out on not only what the triangles are and, and the players are, but the perspectives that everybody's bringing to the table, which is embedded in the whole premise of that show. Yeah, I don't I don't know that show super well, but um, but I do just want to say in the case of that and also something like uh, Jane the Virgin, but also even going back to a super sitcom thing like Friends, um, mm-hmm. it's a structure that TV is so much better and and more capable of doing and playing out over a really long period of time than like any other any other f- form. I mean, right. there was there was there have been serial fictions in the past, but there has never been a serial like the, when the novel was serialized, it still ended in a marriage. And if there was any mm-hmm. kind of love triangle, it was like very brief. And then the marriage happened and then you were done. And instead, now you get, say, friends where first you have um, Ross and Rachel and like Emily. And then we have to do it again with Ross and Rachel and Joey. And, you know, it it is it is more reflective of what it actually feels like to live a life where you have to live through several relationships totally. I think, than, than any other fictional structure that I know of. Yeah, because you're also, you're li- you're, you, the viewer, are living with the show. Exactly. You're yeah. living with it over a period of years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Although in Friends, it, it. It, Friends, it felt a little bit musical chairs-ish Absolutely. to me. Absolutely. It can, it can also then get incredibly staid and... and uh, cardboard cut out like um it's not doesn't necessarily feel like like realism but i think the fact that you live with the show as matt said make give you want to give it that even if it's not necessarily there anymore Um, right yeah right and then you have shows now being even more naturalistic like Mm -hmm. master of none where you have this relationship that's kind of a big core of the show kind of fall apart for completely realistic reasons at the end of the yeah. the first season. Yeah. Um yeah, or even not naturalistic but um playing with the idea of a love triangle in in more dangerous ways. I was thinking of Search Party which actually has kind of like mm. a weird like she's mm-hmm. with Drew and then there's this other detective figure and yeah. and then that does not go well. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely doesn't. Yeah, and uh, a show I really like um that also dealt with this in a surprising way, I thought, in its finale is Younger. Mm. Um, just in terms of, you know, that is a show that's a much more traditional romantic comedy, it feels like. Yeah. But I, I felt like the way 
that it leaves things. It ends up being more about who she is and her having to face herself kind of in the way that Search Party mm. ended its first season. Yeah. Um, which I really like because it kind of takes the focus just away from you kind of there's such a urge to kind of be like I'm team Charles or I'm team Josh in the case of younger, but but it really forces you to kind of to not do that. Yeah. Which is a relief. Is it is, yeah. yeah. It's nice. I mean, I think that's the key difference with a lot of the shows we're seeing now is that it's really based in character development as opposed to a gimmick to keep people watching or, uh, you know, just like a like we're talking about with friends, like a plot device. It's it's also reflective of who these people are and the, and, and the way that they're evolving as people. Yeah. And it just makes like it. it's not that they're necessarily doing anything all that differently, but that is a big enough difference to make it so that the show is stronger and able to sustain itself for longer while yeah. keeping you interested. So I think ultimately it just makes for better storytelling. It it completely does make for better storytelling. I think also when there are so many different TV shows that you can pick from to watch, if you have one where all the characters are actually developed and have interesting lives, like yeah. maybe you would pick that one instead of the one where it's like, oh, love triangle again. Dumb. Right. Yeah. 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 One thing I've noticed on I don't know if you guys have noticed this at all on um, shows that you've watched, but I was a huge Alias fan mm. and Michael Vartan and Jennifer Garner were together in real life. And once they broke up in real life, I, I'm, I'm convinced that that led to them having zero chemistry on that show. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I just feel like there was a tangible difference in how they kind was of- Was that before or after he got walloped with a car crash? Like, it was- Oh- it was right around then. Yeah. I mean, that uh, seems like a nice and, punishment, right? To just right? smash him with a car. I mean, and the, the, it was <laughs> the show also just got worse. Yeah, you know? it did. It certainly so did. So there was that happening as well. But but they had such great chemistry. Mm. And yet, and, how many times have you heard this? And it's actually true. A lot of times the people who have the best chemistry on screen can't stand each other off screen. Yeah, it's yeah. true. Bruce Willis well, and like, Shepard were that way. And, you know, like Richard Gere and mm -hmm. Deborah Winger, Officer and a Gentleman, supposedly couldn't stand each other. Mm-hmm. I believe it. I do, yeah. too. Yeah. So who I guess it's as mysterious as the real thing, the casting. Right. Yeah. 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 Hmm. It's interesting that how um, the development of material that has to do with relationships and sex seems to have proceeded much more slowly than almost anything else on American television. Well, certainly more than, say, violence. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. The fact that married couples couldn't be shown sleeping in the same bed until, like, the late 60s I know. is mind-boggling. Isn't that great? In retrospect. Yeah. Yeah. Really great. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's also a way – it's also a place where the TV that we think of as being important and formative, uh, sort of, like, golden age t t TV where we're thinking about, like, important, super masculine kinds of shows that were actually dealing with sex and violence and that kind of thing. Um, soaps were doing a lot of this stuff. If not necessarily mm -hmm. directly, then certainly um, the implication was there. And you have to imagine that audiences were reading it into them. Some of it was not even implication. I think the, the Luke and Laura relationship began was... Whew, that, that one was messed up. Really messed up. <laughs> I mean, right? that was like cable, like like pay cable writers would look at that relationship and go, I don't know, this is a bit much. Exactly. It's a bit much. <laughs> deeply, deeply, deeply messed up because the idea was that like maybe he raped her kind of in the beginning, he right? Did. He, he did. He totally did. Yeah, I never, I have never yeah. seen it, but I was reading yeah. about this. And so then like in order to make their relationship actually have... Apparently, people wanted them to be together, and so they then, did. Like, right, yeah, very much yes. so. Yeah, and their so, wedding was a big deal. I that I know about, right? And so, <laughs> and so they had to. She had to like. They had to talk about. There was like counseling and stuff that happened. Anyhow, that I think is one of those situations where it happened on a soap opera, which only women watched during the daytime, and so it didn't become part of the narrative of what is shown on TV, and it didn't become part of the canon of like important mm -hmm. moments in TV in the same way that, you know. Tony and Carmela, we now understand is like such a vital and totally screwed up TV marriage. Right. Did. Um, well, I think also, I mean, in terms of primetime television, there was such a focus on that being for families. Yeah. That even though oh, yeah. you know soap operas were on during the day, there was a, a sense that 
right or wrongly that they were being watched by housewives while the kids were at school so they would not be exposed to whatever um, was going on in General Hospital or yeah. as the world turns or whatever. Um, but I think that was a lot of why they were so careful about what they showed in terms of marriage. As ridiculous as that sounds when children were living with, you yeah, know, sure. moms and dads who yeah. they knew were in the same bed. <laughs> right, right. Be quiet. Yeah, who Ma- exactly? Mommy has to watch the rape plot now. Who exactly? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but who exactly was being protected? You know, in retrospect, right. it seems I, I don't I don't know how to answer that question. Like, who did they think they were protecting? I don't I don't know, but it does seem like when there was a space where it was soaps that were for women, and women were watching them, and men didn't really have to. It didn't have to be. You sort of could stay in its own place. Hmm. I don't know. Maybe you know. It's interesting to think that like uh, daytime soap operas were consistently. And this is true. Consistently way ahead of the curve when it came to uh, tackling not just explicit sexuality but also social issues. Oh yeah, like absolutely. like combustible social issues. And um, these were not uh, censored, really regulated. There occasionally, if something was a really really big deal, it would bust out into the mainstream media, and there would be discussions of mm-hmm. it. But it's really interesting and almost weirdly funny to think that, like, they were able to pioneer so much because men were not paying attention for the most part. Look, that's how a lot of stuff gets done. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I guess, I mean, I think it's also right, vital to remember that the Internet didn't exist. And so right. only the women who were watching it at that moment knew what would ha- what happened. And it's not like they then went online on Twitter and said, like, oh, my God, he raped her. Right? I mean, it was sort of. In it was the the culture of people who were watching it and mag buying magazines about it and yeah, not so proper digest right. right it had it was much harder to then leap over into a kind of mainstream awareness of what was happening. Thank you so much for joining us, Catherine. My pleasure. Yeah. I'm just a girl in love. I can't be held responsible for my actions. I have no underlying issues to address. We are very excited to have Rachel Bloom back on the podcast again. Her CW show, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, recently wrapped the first half of its second season. And Rachel was also nominated for a Golden Globe Award for the second year in a row for Best Actress in a Comedy or a Musical. Rachel, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been great watching Crazy Ex-Girlfriend this season because it, you know, it's still the same show, but it there have also been a lot of changes that have been just really fun to watch. We have Rebecca moving Thank away. You. Yeah, like it feels like it's the core of the show is the same, but we're it feels very fresh in this way where you're kind of moving into a more a direction that's focused more on the female friendships and Rebecca's becoming part of this new girl group with Heather and Valencia and you all have this great comedic timing together and just feel very believable as a group of friends and I'm I'm just curious, you know, did you always know you wanted to move it in this direction and that these three characters specifically would be kind of becoming the core girl group of the show? Well, yes and no, because, I mean, you'll see there's more change coming up this season. I mean, when Alina and I first got together and were talking about creating the show, the first thing she said to me, Alina hadn't worked in TV in 25 years. And she mm-hmm. said, I truly have no interest in doing a sitcom that spits out copies of itself. I want to do, I'm a screenwriter. I want to do, you know, Aline's a brilliant screenwriter. Um, and she's like, I want to do a comedy with a story. I want to do a comedy with trajectory. I want to do it like a 50 hour movie. And so we always knew that each season was going to have um, these arcs uh, to themselves. And, and so we, with this season, knew it was going in this direction. However, um, a lot of the specificities are around just, uh, okay, what actors do we want to see together? Oh, look at this dynamic that's happened. I mean, the idea of Rebecca Valencia and Heather all hanging out certainly didn't occur to us, uh, you know, early on in the first season. Mm-hmm. Um, but now is developed into something that we're really excited about and excited to explore. Um, but the season takes other, as you will see, other thing, other turns. <laughs> yeah, we're, I'm, I've heard there's going to be a new actor, Scott Michael Foster, I believe his name, who'll be joining the show when yes. we return as a potential love interest and fellow lawyer. I don't want to, anything I say would be a spoiler, but, but I, but he brings a new dynamic to the show. He's brilliant. He's wonderful. Also, Seem, just from a personal note, seamlessly 
fits in with our cast, like instantly is just part of the family. I mean, so instantly part of the family. Um, and that is uh, something that brings I, a necessary new dynamic. That's something I really like about the show is it really naturally integrates new characters. Like I love Sunil already and Josh's oh, new girlfriend feels like a perfect part of this universe. It's just, yeah, everyone just seems like they had always been there. Oh, that's so great. I mean, yeah, we love, I think that there is a little bit of a piece of the puzzle where it's like, um, and, and Scott, Michael Foster's character is no exception where it's like, okay, what are we craving at this point in the season? Or what are we craving for a future storyline? Okay, what, What's something we need to have in place in order for X, Y, Z to happen? Okay, so every, so this character serves a purpose. Okay, who are they? So we try to find that combination of characters that not only serve purposes, but also are in some ways a trope in their own right that we're then going to work hard to upend and find the kind of depth and gray areas within mm -hmm. We were talking about the show going in some different directions, but one of the things I also like is that you've already started doing reprises of songs from the first season, like uh, bringing back Sexy Getting Ready song, for example, yeah. in a different context. Oh, God. Is that something you yeah. see yourself doing with, with other things you did in the first season as this season continues? That is a giant yes. Um, and I'm very excited to talk to you guys when the season is done. Um, but yes, I love, I love reprises because I... You know, the show to me and, and to Aline and to the writer's room is a giant musical. And so bringing back musical motifs, um, bringing back reprises, it's a way to thematically tie it all together. And I, I forget whose exact idea the Trent is Getting Ready song was, but oh my God, when I heard that idea, amazing. It's so, <laughs> it's and because what that is, is it, it's themes, it's of course, like Trent tries just as hard as Rebecca to force himself <laughs> into situations like what a great way to bring back that song. I also loved how in the midseason finale, when you and Valencia go to Josh's new girlfriend's eyebrow studio, the that the yoga song is playing, which is the song. Oh, that, so that, glad you noticed that. Yeah, I love that because it's the parallel again between. You know, when Rachel was feeling jealous of Valencia and now the two of them feeling jealous of this new woman was just really great. Yes, that that episode is almost um, it's a sequel, really, to the second episode of the first season. It's kind of a mix of that episode and then the 17th episode of the first season when she and Paula sneak into a pie shop and they think, um, you know, the woman is baking something into a pie. It it's mm -hmm. Valencia in that episode has kind of replaced Paula and that and that's on purpose. You can do uh, that, that, you know, the idea of bringing back particular songs, particular motifs is just such a very musical idea. And, mm -hmm. and I hadn't thought of that until this discussion that this, you know, there's been so much attention paid, rightly so, to the sheer number of original songs that you generate. But musicals often return to not just not just songs, but ideas and motifs. And they and maybe they do them in a different key. They do them at a different speed. They give them, give them mm -hmm. to a different character and they have a different meaning. Yeah, I and I I mean one of my favorite arrangements was the arrangement Adam did of uh, the reprise of Settle for Me Heather's song Don't Settle for Me and he kind of made it into this more modern this modern feeling jam that I could have just listened to I could have listened to a 3 minute version of that in its own right um and and he really rewrote it to fit Vela Lavelle's voice which is obviously quite different um than Santino's voice mm -hmm. and that's really fun too, and the 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 composers of the show also do that. The idea of taking these melodies and and rearranging them to fit the emotion of the scene. One of my favorite songs from this season is is in the premiere, uh, "Love Kernels," the in which you joke about how you. You blew the show's production budget on making that song, and I was just curious: <laughs> is there any truth to that? Uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, yes, hundred <laughs> percent. That was a big. That was a big swing because that's that's the most meta we we have been so far. And um, but with the musical numbers, you can kind of get a bit meta. Also, Rebecca does see herself in her own kind of musical, and I think to some extent her own television show. But yes, that number was expensive. We went out to the desert for a day in a pre-production to film those sweeping desert scenes. We built another set on stage. You know, with all that lavish beautiful furniture um the costumes alone i mean especially that cactus costume it's 
it's expensive <laughs> um, and it's a lot and it's a lot of work. We, when we first uh, talked to you, God, it was, you know, I guess a year ago or more, uh, yeah. you had mentioned a, a musical number that you wanted to do in season one that had to be cut because it was, was just too expensive. Was that the one? Or, or has there been more than, or has there been more I, than one instance? I, uh, what was I, I talking about? Yeah, I can't remember the context, <laughs> but you know. Because it was too expensive in season I have no idea what I was yeah. talking. I mean, look, I was probably high off my ass. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, I, God, I don't know. That was definitely, no, that was not the musical number. I mean, that's what's refreshing actually about season two, especially Love Kernels, is season two for the first time, you know, Rebecca only admitted that she was in love with Josh in episode nine. Right. And only got that love a little bit consummated in episode 13. And really it wasn't until the season finale that it was fully consummated, literally. And so episode, so season two, we've been able to do love songs you know actual open love songs and so love kernels is something we couldn't really have done mm -hmm. in season one mm -hmm. to, to piggyback on that question like how often at this stage are you writing songs that don't end up in the show it it happens i mean greg's greg's song in episode four we had eight drafts of partially because when jack adam and i sat down to brainstorm that song we were like well this song should have a curse in it because so it's a wistful goodbye song that in the that that also needs to say uh, this whole thing was always fucked, right? Because mm -hmm. we want to take the Greg and Rebecca's relationship, which does elicit a lot of emotion, but also look at it in a realistic way, which is like there's so much about it that is incredibly unhealthy and dysfunctional. And the way to make that comedically pop in our heads was like, you have to curse. And we were like, oh, fuck, no, we can't curse. And so then we came up with all these, fuck, we can't curse. And so we came up with all these these ways to try to do the song without cursing. Some of them were more dramatic than others. We were like, maybe we just make it a serious song. And it's it's a beautiful goodbye song. And finally, I was like, I, the only way to do this song is if it's like, Frank Sinatra's, Sinatra's my way, but he's saying like this, this thing was a fucking shit show. Right. <laughs> and so, yeah. so we talked to S and P and they were like, all right, you can say shit twice and you can bleep it twice. We'll give you two. Sh we'll give two shits. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. They That's gave, amazing. they gave two shits. Um, and so that, and then we actually just, we had a song that felt great. We needed a character to have an internal, very quiet moment quiet real moment and there was a song that they were singing that we were worried kind of in the flurry of, of filming this episode like oh maybe that wouldn't get it across so we wrote an entirely new song and then we were like actually the first song did it and because we we heard the demo of me doing it as opposed to like the kind of the demo singer and we decided to go back to the other song so we have a beautiful song basically that we wrote in a day that maybe we'll use in season three so one of the big changes this season two was the departure of greg who leaves to go to Emory College. And I'm just wondering how you felt, you know, how did it feel as a cast to to lose San Santino Fontana on the show? I mean, it's hard. You know, Greg is a part of, Greg is, is partially, I mean, he's based on a lot of people, but like speaking personally, he's based on an element of myself. The way he feels in Southern California is the way I felt growing up. But, you know, we knew we needed, you can't have, we just can't, I can't keep, we couldn't keep doing this to him, right? We couldn't keep, having his heart get broken and we knew we wanted to end the love triangle and then um actually an article on on Velcher, you know santino had other scheduling things and kind of we came together with him to figure figure out how to essentially complete his arc in in a way that we had always always wanted to and it was it was uh it was sad i mean it was saying goodbye to a, a character that we love and he's awesome and so talented and um, I mean he's back in New York so we don't really see him but um, yeah it, it was hard but felt 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 right and felt good for his character because the thing we have a, I have a lot of empathy for these characters and I was really in watching the episode especially really happy for him because the alternate way to do that storyline, of course, is to have Rebecca jerk him around and break his heart once more and then to have him maybe fall off the wagon. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. But like, God, this poor guy, like this guy can't catch a break. And we, we've always said that Rebecca coming to West Covina was this pebble in the pond. Right. Even as maybe she takes one step forward, two steps back, she changes the lives of people around her. And we always knew that we wanted Rebecca 
to ultimately light the fire under Greg's ass, even if it was inadvertently. And if she wasn't around, he would still be living in West Covina. And ultimately, I think it's important that he not everyone has to leave West Covina to progress, but he personally couldn't have progressed had he stayed there uh, because of all of the things that town meant to him, but also all the things Rebecca meant. I mean, I think he just physically needed to get away from her and all of the things she represented because as long as she's in town, as long as they're in the same town, he was, and as long as she was emotionally unstable because we started, when we started this season, he had grown leaps and bounds ahead of her, but he was still in love with her. And so she could very easily get him back into her orbit, right? So actually that idea of both emotional and physical distance is something that I haven't seen done before with a, with a love triangle. Yeah, I, I love how it, you know, in that scene where she runs to the airport, I think, to try to get him to stay, like that's traditionally like such a romantic type of scene and movies and tv shows and that <laughs> yeah. just felt so toxic and bad and yes. just like you really it's don't wrong. yeah i mean a stroke of editing brilliance um and this was spearheaded by aline was you know so originally the scene where they meet on the bridge and they kiss and she says can we try this again please and then the therapist's office were separate scenes and aline combined them in a way that i think is so brilliant because what it feels like is a thriller where it's scary yeah. and it's like you yeah. know, she's in the therapist's office. There's this ominous music. And as she's begging Greg, you know, please, can we just try this again? You know, it's the wrong decision. Rather than if the scene had just kind of existed on its own, you might have gotten enthralled in the swell of that romanticism. Right. Where it's like, oh, my God, look at oh, maybe maybe they are meant to be together. But I we we wanted to always have this ominous undertone. To That's it. interesting because I never would have imagined that those scenes were intended to play separately. That was that was a, a happy surprise for me in post that I was huh. so um, it's one of my favorite things Aline's ever done in post. It was so great. One of the strengths, I think, of the show that doesn't get talked about as much is how well it portrays how we relate to each other online and through social media. And I love the, the midseason finale scene where you and Valencia are both online stalking Josh and. I'm just curious, you know, how do you even begin to approach scenes that are driven by technology where staring at a computer screen or a phone screen isn't the most dynamic thing, but you guys make it feel so dynamic? (laughs) You're good at that. Well, I think that you want to to focus on the character. And I mean, that scene, um, and Michael Hitchcock, who wrote that episode, did such a good idea um, of of crafting that scene to be active. And I think that that kind of seamless dialogue is what there's, there is a there's an energy and a propulsion to the scene and the dialogue where it's like they're overlapping each other, you know, coo, 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 coolio, coolio, coo, coo, coo. You know, it's, it's this kind of constant exchange of ideas that if it was a lot of silence would have felt really stagnant, but because Heather's constantly being like, what the fuck is going on with you guys? And they're talking as they're searching. There is a propulsion to it. Yeah. And it was really fun to film. That. The show also does that 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 eerie suspense of texting, like uh-huh. the, you know the way yes. like the timing of a response. It's like if it's quick, you think, "Oh, good, there." That's an honest, positive response, but it may actually be a lie. And also, like yes. the too long of a pause before a reply, and you start to wonder, "Do they hate me? Did I say the wrong thing?" And sometimes they're just trying to find exactly the right word so they don't offend you. Like, these are all, like, forms of awkwardness that are kind of new to drama, to re- being represented on TV. Right. Right. And they, it feels so silly. As dramatic, it's—and I think what makes it really conducive to comedy, obviously, is that the emotions around it are very real. And it, they're emotions we all feel. But the actual fact of it, you know, if you were describing it to an alien, being like, well, the person is waiting to see if they're going to text a happy face. It's ridiculous. It's absurd. <laughs> that's not that's not human interaction. That's that's nothing. That's 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 technology standing in for interaction. But it it is no less real than someone telling you, you know, fuck off to your face. It's kind of a weird intermediate form of c- communication between speech and writing. You know, yes. so it's like it's no wonder yes. that we don't know quite what we're doing with it yet. You know, <laughs> oh, I still I mean, I'm just I'm just starting to understand the idea of bitmojis and when to use one. And I'm a, I'm a very recent convert to the uh, to the uh, exclamation point to indicate that you mean no harm. 
that. <laughs> 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 yeah. Yes. Oh, I haven't used that. It's yeah. in, it's interesting because this this sort of thing, like like when you read like uh, how to write a screenplay, they tell you you're supposed to show and not tell, and yet so much of our life now is telling. Because of the way we just the way we communicate, we're to, you know, like we're typing to each other. We're literally delivering messages to each other all day. Yeah, you know, I was talking to I was talking to a very a a, a very a, a great screenwriter the other day. Um, he's um, the boyfriend of a friend of mine, and he wrote Mr. Allen's Opus. He's like a great screenwriter, oh. and he was he said something really cool, which is because um, I've I've actually never written a screenplay, and I'm about to write my first screenplay, and I'm about to start writing it. And he was like, "Write ugly, write." It's a novice thing to follow rules by the book. And, and, and I really, when I was first learning sketch comedy, there was almost this fear of not writing to the rules. And, you know, you can't do that. Why would, you know, and there, there's a fear of breaking the rules. But um, he preached the opposite thing, which I thought was really interesting. He was like, no, 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 just break the rules, write what you want to write. And then, you know, hone it from there. What lessons have you learned? What rules have you broken from working on this show? Like, how, how do you think you've evolved as as a as a writer, as a performer, in terms of your craft? Well, I, you know, yeah. I think. Well, first of all, as a drama actor, it's been such a crash crash course in drama acting. You know, I was a theater major, but I've spent the past couple of years doing comedy, and this was the past couple seasons of doing the show have really been a way for me to get back to like, no, I I love acting, and I love. I, I'm I'm an emo I'm actually in a very like emotional actor. Like I I get I'm not like method, but like I my emotions get caught up in the scenes, and that's been really fun to reconnect with that side of myself, the kind of just uh, emotional dramatic acting side. And then from a story standpoint, I mean I've learned so much from Aline because I mean it's exactly what that guy was saying. Aline has been writing for so long, and she's so good at it, and she's so good at story that. She can do things that feel unconventional and scary and risky. And uh, a perfect example of this is in episode four of the first season, uh, the I'm going on a date with Josh's friend. We were outlining the story and the, the, the clean kind of the, the first thought clean way to do that story is she and Greg are on a date together and the date's going amazingly. And then she fucks another guy. Right. Because she's afraid of something so great. Um, because she's she's afraid of being happy. And Aline kept saying, no, 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 no. She's not afraid of being happy. She's afraid of being down, brought down to earth. She's afraid of having a real grounded relationship. So you have to have them have a little bit of an argument and then work through it. And I was like, but that's not clean. I was thinking of it very mathematically because that's how I also learned TV writing when I took this great class at NYU that 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 taught a little bit of this almost mathematical structure of, of crafting an episode of television that that I still uh, use, even when I break that formula, uh, you know, I break it consciously. And Aline was like, no, 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 this is the right way to do it. And I was like, okay, I'm going to trust you on this. And she was totally right. And so I think that I've learned to really get out of the mathematical side of myself that mm -hmm. looks at story and story structure and go with, okay, well, what, what would people do in real life? And maybe it's not like the most like, first thought clean way but that's often the best way you know going to what feels scary and risky um, especially when you're working with someone who really really knows what they're doing so I've learned so much about uh, story and how to combine story structure with heart mm -hmm. it's interesting that in that, that anecdote that you gave you know your your scenario was one where it was almost mathematically exact this this leads to that, and this is how we express the problem that she's having. And and your and, yeah. and your partner counters with something that's like when you described it, it was like if I were you, my first thought would be, but that sounds really hard. Yes, and then yes, and and then luckily she did it brilliantly, along with the episode writer uh, Aaron Ehrlich, um, who's our other executive producer. Um, but I mean, another example of uh, even in the pilot, because Aline and I wrote the pilot just together in a room, word by word, improvising together. I mean, that, and that's why the show's tone is the way it is, because Aline and I come from different backgrounds. I come from sketch, and, uh, you know, the TV writing that I do come from is, is animation. You know, Robot Chicken, my first gig was on this Fox show, Alan Gregory, and she comes from writing screenplays, things like The Devil Wears Prada and 27 Dresses, We Bought a Zoo, and so very different backgrounds. And the tone of the show really is us combining our two sensibilities. Mm -hmm. It's It's... It's truly our baby. And I just remember we were talking about 
Okay, so Rebecca gets to this party with Greg, and we know that something has to happen. And Aline just busts out, what if she just, like, gave him a hand job? <laughs> and I was like, what? I was like, what are you talking? What? And she's like, what if she just, like, oh, no, I think, yeah. She's like, what? I don't know. She just, like, blew him. <laughs> and and I was like, I, I was like, what would that be? And then we actually talked about, because you don't want to, my pet peeve about, this was back when it was, of course, like an edgy, uh, when it was a cable show. Mm -hmm. My pet peeve about a lot of cable shows is like, you'll just cut to people 69ing just because you can't, right? And it's like, what? Where it's just like, where it's like, hi, I'd like the bread, please. Sexy music plays and then just cut to them fucking. And you're like, whoa, that's not how people are. That's not, that's not what life is like, really. Um, so, so she was like, okay, what if she just gave him a hand job? And at first I was like, oh, but then I was like, okay, well, what would earn that? And then she and I talked through it and I was like, all right, well, what she wants in the scene is trying to get information. And so it's an it's a hand job interrogation. Right. <laughs> and that was like our and that ended up that kind of big statement that Aline made ended up being really the key to Greg and Rebecca's relationship, which is this constant power dynamic, this constant power struggle where and originally, obviously, it was a makeout scene in the CW version. But this idea of, OK, so it's a scene where a girl's giving a guy a hand job, which is originally what it is. And then it goes to a blowjob scene. So. Theoretically, he has all the power, right? He's getting a hand job. But actually, she has all the power. She has his dick in her hands while questioning him about his best friend's whereabouts. <laughs> um, and that's kind of their whole relationship is he, theoretically he has the power, but actually it's her. I mean, mm -hmm. Settle for Me, it's this very, you know, old school masculine song, top hat and tails. He's wooing her. But it's completely emasculating, somewhat pathetic song. Yeah. Where he has no right. self-respect. Right. And so that has been really fun to play with. Now that you're now that you're halfway through season two and, you know, the show has been building some buzz. Does Are you feeling are you feeling like you're getting more mainstream attention or any change in the types of people who are noticing the show? Like recently I saw David Simon and Zadie Smith raving about how much they like oh, it. That was so cool. Pretty amazing. Yeah. I mean, I think that the getting, you know, I think Netflix helps a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, someone just told me Netflix has 90 million subscribers. And so there was a mark, there was a marked difference between, uh, b before Netflix and after Netflix. And there definitely have been more articles about the show. Um, I really feel like people are talking about it. I think we're still a, a cult show. Um, but it was always kind of meant to be that it's such mm -hmm. a specific, it's such a specific show and does such specific things. And so it's just, it's great for more people to see the show and get the show and be affected by the show we haven't talked at all about paula um and the uh -huh. relationship that's that, that's been developing between her and rebecca and, and the kind of fracture in that relationship which yeah. led to i think one of my favorite songs you've done this season you go first about the attempt to apologize but you're waiting for the other person to go first which i thought was a really great reflection of of talking about how people actually act in real life. That was a great example of that. Um, can you talk a little bit about that song and then also just about the Paula relationship and why you decided to kind of break them up essentially for a little while? Sure. Um, well, You Go First is all Adam Schlesinger. We had another song uh, originally that I'd done lyrics for called like, what's the right emoji to say I love you, which is funny, but felt a little bit, a little bit like territory we had uh, tread on before and so we're on the way to the emmys we're all meeting at my house to go to the emmys and adam's like guys i have a new song pitch let me just play it for you so he sat down on my piano and played it and i was like oh yeah okay great that's the song and so he just he busted that one out uh and it's an amazing song i mean it's one of our it's it's one of my favorite songs certainly of the season we've ever done also directed amazingly by jude wang um yeah the wigs are amazing and oh my god i mean the wigs <laughs> They were just, they were so fun. Um, you know, the similar to Rebecca and Greg, the way that Paul and Rebecca got together was inherently a little bit dysfunctional. And so I think it's always this tension of, can they push past that? And also, it is a real friendship. And it has its problems, but all friendships and real relationships do. And so it's always playing it we're, we're always trying to navigate like what's healthy and what's not healthy and what 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 unhealthiness can they push through and what unhealthiness can they kind of not get past uh, you know until it's fixed 
And uh, when we come back from the break, we we directly talk about that. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Rachel. This was so much fun. Thank you for having me again. That's just about it for this week's show. But before we go, it's time for this week's aria. This week, it's my turn. I'm going to use this week's aria to talk about something a little personal, women's body hair on TV. As an Iranian girl, historically hairy people, with a mom who wouldn't let me shave my legs or deal with my unibrow by the time kids started pointing things like that out, seeing women display their body hair or talk about it on TV always feels like a very intimate way of seeing myself reflected on screen. When I say body hair, I'm not talking about pubic hair, which we see in sexual situations more and more on shows from Girls to Game of Thrones. I'm talking about hair that, because of our societal norms, makes a woman feel more like a man. Mustache hair, arm hair, back hair, leg hair. Typically, when women's body hair does come up on TV, it's usually a source of comedy because body hair is funny. In recent years, it's almost started to become its own TV trope on female-driven comedies. It started with Carrie waxing her pubic hair on Sex and the City, but on more modern sh- on more modern shows, the places women remove their hair from have become less girly than going to get a bikini wax. For example, on Broad City, we see Abby and Alana waxing their happy trails and butt hair, and things go comically awry when Alana gets wax up her butthole. Rebecca Bunch similarly waxes her butt hair in the pilot episode of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, and it ends up looking like a crime scene with blood spurting all over the place. In the upcoming Netflix show, One Day at a Time, there's a scene where the mom, Penelope, removes her mustache, and it raises the suspicion of every one of her family members who thinks it must mean she has a date. And on 30 Rock, Liz Lemon's mustache even has a name, Tom Selleck. Most recently, Lola Kirk, who plays Haley on Mozart in the Jungle, flashed her impressive armpit hair in an episode of the show's third season, which her sister, Jemima Kirk, has also done on Girls. This is arguably the most progressive form of women's body hair on TV. It's casually dropped in, you actually see the hair rather than having it be covered with wax, and nobody acknowledges it. There's no humor to flag it as something abnormal. But the one body hair moment, body hair TV moment that really stuck with me was a blink and you'll miss it scene in season two of The Mindy Project, where Mindy is going to a wedding and in a subversion of the typical rom-com getting ready montage, she straight up shaves her arms on screen. Note to listeners, you should never shave your arm hair. Hair removal creams are best for that. But that's what makes this Mindy moment so great. Hairy women have all had that moment where they shaved their arms before they knew it was a bad idea. Typically, that moment happens when you're a teenager and not a grown woman like Mindy, and that's what makes it even funnier. Seeing Mindy deal with her hairy arms was also particularly meaningful because when you come from a hairy people like Mindy does and like I do, it can become a source of shame growing up that in a very fundamental way is tied to a sense of who you are. And removing it feels like a rite of passage, both in terms of achieving womanhood and assimilating into society. So when we talk about representation on screen, even the tiny humanizing things like this go a long way. You never forget the moments that make you feel less like a freak. Those jeans are cute. Want some of my smoothie? Wait, you should put this pillow under your knees first. He gives me love kernels. Each little crumb another tasty clue. Love kernels. That's it for this week's show. The Vulture TV podcast is produced by Sam Dingman and Jordan Bell. Laura Mayer is our director of production, and Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. I'm Gazella Mommy, and you can find me on Twitter at Gazellephant. I'm Matt Zoller Seitz, and you can find me on Twitter at Matt Zoller Seitz. And I'm Jen Cheney, and you can find me on Twitter at Cheney J. Thanks for listening. I was in your dreams before you woke up to pee. It's the 3 a.m. And I know you care when you say I'm going to a movie tonight My friend Bale wanna come It means I'm the most important person in his life Next to his friend Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Vulture TV Podcast. Just a reminder that if you like our show, you'll also love Vulture's other podcast, The Award Show Show. Get it on iTunes.